Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. And this week, it's a podcast on the career of Clint Eastwood. Yes, Clint Eastwood is now 91 years old and has been at the center of American movies for, geez, almost 60 years, it seems like. Uh, a massive career of, you know, not just performances, but also directing like well over 40 movies. So to help kind of unpack this magnificent career, um, I have with me on the other line, Emily Wheeler. Emily, welcome back to the latest. Um, should mention, we're doing this because Clint has a new movie this week. It's It's out in theaters and on hbo max it's called cry macho um (laughs) the most clint eastwood title ever (laughs) i was just thinking it is kind of like a simpsons parody of like what a clint eastwood movie would be called um so we have so much to get into on this episode i've been really looking forward to this clint eastwood is like even if you do not like him as a movie star or the movies he makes he is a fascinating person to talk about um i I first want to ask you, what interests you about Clint Eastwood as a figure, and what do you think has made him such a central, unique figure to Amer- American movies for 50, even 60 years? I mean, I definitely say he's been at the center for 50 years, but even if you count like some of the Sergio Leone movies that he's been in and the the Rawhide stuff, like he's he's been kind of a part of the culture for 60 years, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where you have to start is I'm I'm not 50 years old. I'm younger than that. <laughs> so, I mean, for for my entire life, he has been a central figure in pop culture and specifically within movie culture. I mean, the f- I was trying to think back to like the first Clint Eastwood movie I saw. And I think I, I honestly don't remember because I was so young. I think it has to be Bronco Billy because my dad loved that movie. Interesting. Which is probably... <laughs> Exactly how a lot of people first were introduced to Clint Eastwood is like, my dad loved this movie with Clint Eastwood in it. Yeah, for me, it was probably like, I'm sure my dad like watched so many Western movies when I was a kid. Like, I'm sure it was just like one of the the man with no name movies was probably just like on TV and I watched it with him is probably like my first introduction. But similar to you, I, I kind of can't pick. It just sort of feels like he was just someone who like, since I was like, knee high was able to just be like that's that's who that is or you know like recognize when someone like jim carrey is doing an impersonation of him or something like that exactly there's just for my entire life there's this idea of clint eastwood and then i got older and got more into movies and started watching more of maybe his other movies uh kind of exploring them on my own and what really became fascinating is that there's a side of his sort of pop culture persona that is accurate but then also that is inaccurate, that he is constantly mm. complicating this idea that kind of the culture has of him and everyone just kind of ignores it. Yeah, he, I forget where I heard this the other day, but like no one comments on the the idea and the star persona of Clint Eastwood more than Clint Eastwood. Like every movie that he appears in, especially the ones that he directs that he also stars in are all kind of like meta commentaries on some aspect of Clint Eastwood, whether it's his sort of movie star persona, whether it's his 
personal life and the 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 relationships he has with um people you know women who have been in and out of his life whether it's about his politics which is a whole other kind of like fascinating thing to unpack because he is seen as such a like right-wing figure in hollywood but also like there are weird kind of contradictions to that in throughout his body of work um i don't know are there any other things that just kind of like pop into your head that that just sort of make him like a fascinating person to dive into i'm looking up right at the moment i want to get a specific number of like how many movies he has specifically been in and how many movies he has specifically directed over the years um i mean that's my big thing is exactly as we were saying the way he consciously plays with both his own persona and everyone's idea of him is just constantly interesting. And then you add into that, you know, sort of by the time I really started watching movies uh, really carefully, which was probably around 2000 on, he's been putting, he's just been churning out movies almost, I would say, one a year at this point. And he just, I mean, he just knows how to make a movie. I don't think there's any arguing, even when the movies go wrong, you can tell why he was making the decisions he made. He He understands exactly how to put together a movie, he can churn them out very fast, and very few of them, even when they're misfires, are kind of what I would term lazy. They always have some idea that he was trying to reach for behind them, and I always appreciate that about his movies. Yeah, and even his, you know, it, there are so many kind of like weird iterations of his career throughout the years that we'll, we'll have plenty of time to unpack. I mean, he, you know, I, I think when... He's, he doesn't start directing movies until he's kind of in his 40s. Um, and, you know, when he does, it's a lot of um, westerns. And, of course, like, there's Play Misty for Me, which is kind of an early erotic thriller. And the the reception around his movies is pretty positive. And then, like, as the sort of 70s go on and you get into the 80s, then there's sort of, like, his movies are still really pop and really popular but there is sort of like a critical backlash to him and then like the french come around to him and then like unforgiven comes out and there is this like switch in american critics that is like he's now this prestige director and now we're almost in this like other phase where he <laughs> that I, I feel like he's a bit more of a divisive director now and and even taking the politics stuff aside divisive in the way of like there's a camp of people that are like this guy is a late stage auteur and just like does not give a fuck anymore and 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 like not in a way of like not caring but of like he is not out to make movies to top the box office he's not really interested in oscars because like he's been there he's done that you know he's had two movies win best picture he's just sort of like finding stories whether they're something like cry macho that i believe is based off of a book or you know watching the news and being like hey i should make a guy a movie about that guy that landed the plane on the hudson (laughs) and then just doing it and he doesn't seem to fuss over it and that leads to a certain um what what sometimes has has uh made me like a little bit of a skeptic of him in later years there's sort of a i I was really trying to find another word but i think uh film critic adam Naiman like best put it as like sparsity 
in in the work where it like the kind of best way I can explain it is like it feels like he shot it in like five days or something like that. And and Clint has this reputation of like I'm I'm going to use the first or second take and we're moving on to lunch of like uh, he just sort of likes doing it and is not going to like fuss over it. And some people see that as kind of this endearing, like weird, like it's almost against the idea of working to have style, but then becomes its own style. And then there's other people now in these sort of late stage movies that are like, wow, that Clint Eastwood movie, like really seemed like a bad TV movie that they made in like 48 hours. And that's, that's such a like weird place to be in. If he just seems to be making movies just because he likes it. And it, they now have this weird, almost kind of like alien, qual- alien detached quality to them sometimes because he is just sort of like I'm. I really, I'm like in my 90s now. I'm not going to like fuss over doing like a long tracking shot or making sure like the sun is perfectly hitting on this car. Of just like we're gonna do a couple takes and then we're gonna we're gonna move on. Yeah, I really don't. I I agree with you. I do not think he's at all a fussy filmmaker. I don't think he's concerned with perhaps aesthetics as much as people other people Mm -hmm. are particularly nowadays i think a lot of what um really makes these latter period clint eastwood movies feel distinct is because he is just coming at it from such a different mindset of how you make films Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that is because of his age he really has not made any concessions to updating the way uh, basically movies are made or the stories are told. I think a lot of times when we talk about movies and you get people who are like, oh, I don't watch movies before the 90s or the 80s or whatever, and people sort of start kind of making fun of people who do that. Mm-hmm. I think what we disregard with people when they say that is that it's it's a simple fact that the storytelling has changed. The methods have changed. The way we pace stories, the way we uh, literally frame shots, like everything about the way we make movies since that time period has fundamentally changed. And Clint comes from before that time period, and he really has not changed to current and to sort of current standards. And that makes his movies feel very different than basically everything else that's coming out right now. Yeah, definitely. He's he's I always think of him as a very classical filmmaker. And it's it's funny. I was like having to do something on work um, with with YouTube the other day and a YouTube ad for Cry Macho came up and it was basically like it was I'm trying to remember who all it was. It was like. Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and George Lucas basically just, like, introducing the trailer and being like, Clint's the last, like, vestige of the, like, classic Hollywood filmmaker of, like, that's his style. And it's, it's, it's funny that, like, you know, we, we can move past even modern filmmaking. Like, Clint, even, even if you get into when he starts directing movies in the 70s, you know, he's a sensibly, like, that's during the new Hollywood period, but he's not like, uh, I think when I was going back and watching some of his movies, like the one movie and he didn't direct it, but the one movie he even appeared in that I would consider like a new Hollywood esque movie is this movie Thunderbolt and Lightfoot that, um, Michael Cimino who made like the deer hunter and heaven's gate made re- really, really like fun buddy heist movie with him and Jeff Bridges in it. But it's like the only movie that you could, that is like him playing into what would have been the style of that period. He's never been like interested in like being like having the filmmaking style of whatever was kind of like hot at the moment. He's always been like a traditionalist and, and like very simple, effective shots, 
choices. He's not moving the camera a lot. And he has more in common with someone like Howard Hawks than he does like a lot of the people that were making movies around the time he started making movies like Spielberg or Scorsese or Chimino, which is is interesting and makes, you know, his movies have kind of a weird timeless quality to them in a way. I love that you brought up Howard Hawks because he's been sitting in the back of my mind. He's one of my favorite directors and um, one of my favorite movies probably of all time is one of his called Only Angels Have Wings. Mm -hmm. And the reason I love that movie is because um, it's this movie about this group of pilots. Um, I believe it's in somewhere in South America. They have this very dangerous uh, runway where they're running mail in and out and they're dying constantly. And basically the entire idea of this movie kind of hanging in the background is this kind of breakdown of this idea of a sort of quote unquote macho masculinity, a very old school style of masculinity. It both kind of praises and shows what is good about that and the breakdown of that and how it's a facade. Um, And I think that is kind of exactly that sort of thing that Howard Hawks does in that movie. And he does so often in his movies is sort of the exact same thing Clint Eastwood does and what draws him to my, to his movies, draws Mm -hmm. me to his movies. Well, since you brought up Macho, let's, let's talk about the new movie Cry Macho, which I'm really, really interested to see what you think about it. I, I sort of think it is both um, awesome and terrible at the same time. <laughs> like, like not like they're like this scene's awesome and then this scene's really bad. Like, like simultaneously both things at at once. And essentially, the story is Clint Eastwood plays a a kind of like washed up retired rodeo cowboy. I believe the movie's set in the like late seventies or early eighties. Um. And essentially a former boss of this is kind of one of the issues with the movies. I'm a little unsure of like how a lot of these people relate to each other, but essentially a former boss of Eastwood um, hires him to go across the border into Mexico to bring back his son. And Clint Eastwood goes, finds the kid who's maybe about like 13, 14. And the majority of the movie is this, this kind of like, light drama road movie um it kind of fits into you know if we're going to talk about subgenres of clint eastwood movies this kind of fits into three it's not set in the old west but it's basically him doing his first western since unforgiven it is like unforgiven and so many of the movies he's starred in since then it is a kind of like uh you know clint riding off into the sunset sort of movie like like a a movie about what it hit him wrestling with his legacy as a movie star and it's also in the category of clint as a mentor to a a younger actor or a younger movie star you know in which you see in stuff like i mean thunderbolt and lightfoot which i mentioned or even something like million dollar baby is like that with him kind of mentoring um hillary swank um i I don't think this movie works by while also thinking that it like as a movie where you are supposed to at the end have this kind of like emotional um feel this emotional connection between him and this kid and you know the the moment when they will inevitably have to part ways is supposed to be this real tear jerky moment um I don't I don't think this movie really works at all on its its sort of own storytelling standards that it sets out 
but nevertheless there is kind of like a weird emotional aspect to it if only to see 91 year old clint eastwood still like eager and excited to be in front of and technically behind the camera and to see someone at his age just still have kind of like an excitement about making movies and so i guess what i'm saying is like as a movie this do- this doesn't work and, and this is one where like the the clint eastwood like i'm we're we're breaking for lunch kind of aspect like does not really fit the movie and there are sections where i was a little like i don't this there, there are kind of like long stretches where like it's just driving or it's just them hanging out in a town and it doesn't feel like a cool hangout movie. It feels like, oh, we just kind of got to fill some time because we didn't really like think through totally what happens in this story. And it's like very, very paper thin what happens in this movie. But there there is still something kind of like emotional that you are as an audience are bringing to it because of whatever your individual relationship is with Clint Eastwood and seeing him on screen older and and arguably more frail looking than he arguably has been. I don't know what what did you think of it? Uh I believe a while back I was on the podcast here to talk about that Angelina Jolie firefighter movie with you. Yes. And I described it as they messed up a very basic uh story that has been told throughout time which is the sort of disgraced older figure is finds redemption through doing something good for a child Mm -hmm. it's a very old story it this movie is exactly that story yes and they actually stick to that outline and clint knows the beats that you need to hit for that outline of a story right and he hits all of them and yet everything in between to build to those points that you have to hit I think, as you were saying, are pretty lightweight and aren't quite enough to hold it all up. So you're kind of sitting there and you're like, okay, I understand this story fundamentally. And it's it's working because I understand the beats that it's hitting and I can see it hitting the beats. But I'm not super invested because it's not building much around those story beats. I, I think it works as a as a meta text about Clint Eastwood, but it doesn't work on sort of like a face value storytelling. Um level and and it 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 made me think of like this is this is a a maybe preposterous take that i'm going to try out on this podcast but in terms of movies about clint you know the idea of clint eastwood getting old um inevitably we're going to have to talk about unforgiven at at some point which is kind of the signature movie in his filmography and is just like a a flat i didn't get a chance to revisit it because i tried to mostly watch stuff i hadn't seen before but i i think just a purely perfect movie um Unforgiven is kind of to Clint Eastwood's um filmography what like the Black Album is to Jay-Z, which is to say like it is such a mic drop and like, you know, if you don't know the the sort of context around Jay-Z's the Black Album was essentially like sold at the time as like he's done. This is his retirement album. This is everything he needs to say. And so it sort of makes everything that comes after you ha- you sort of approach it with a bit of a raised eyebrow of like well, what more do you need to add? And like, what's the re and sort of like every other album since then has to have some sort of uh, publicity around it of like, well, this is the reason he's coming back or like, Oh, this thing, whether it's, you know, a relationship thing or whether it's like, he's got to sell a phone or he's collaborating with this person. 
and but n- nothing ever quite has the same sort of power since that record because that record just feels like I'm leaving it all on the table. And Unforgiven is sort of seemingly the same way of Unforgiven is him being like I'm going to subvert both my star persona, I'm going to comment on it. I'm going to comment on this legacy of violent movies that I've been in. Um and movie comes out. It's a hit. Wins best picture at the Oscars. People are like one of the greatest movies ever made, arguably the greatest western movie ever made. And he goes on to make several more movies that are basically about the idea of Clint Eastwood getting old, whether there's something as light as Space Cowboys or really dark as Gran Torino, you know, everything in between like blood work is, is, is about Clint Eastwood getting old. Um, the mule, which came out a few years ago and it was actually like a hit. Like people don't really discuss that, but that movie was a big hit. That's about Clint Eastwood getting old. But Every time I approach one of these movies, they don't quite have the same power because it's sort of like you did it already. Like you left it all on the table. And so even even that aspect of this movie, I'm a little like, I don't know, you just sort of like covered the same idea better in another movie. And like that movie is so perfect that like every every time he's sort of come back to that idea of I'm getting old, what what do I mean in the context of a more kind of like modern society? a more modern movie culture and I'm going to sort of wrestle with my star persona and my past. Like it's, it's just sort of felt like diminishing returns to a little bit, even the ones that I kind of think are sort of fun. Like the mule isn't great, but there is sort of like, that is another kind of late stage road movie that he did that I think is actually like a little bit more fun just because there's more stuff that happens along the way in that movie than in cry macho. Yeah, I think the way the way I've fallen on Cry Macho is you have to be invested in Clint kind of as a persona and as a pop culture figure. Mm-hmm. I think if you have affection for Clint Eastwood, this movie will ride by on that affection. It is, I would say it is a bit of a hangout movie. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of a bit about hanging out with Clint Eastwood at the end of his career, definitely looking back on everything. I think what benefits this movie and what really kind of turned it over into, you know what, I had I had a decent time watching this. I'm not mad that I watched this. It's an mm. okay movie. Is that it basically is about giving him the send-off that you kind of wish he could have. It's a very gentle movie and it's very mm. kind of, I think I described it as kind of the anti-raging against the dying of the light movie. Mm. He's just kind of going gently into kind of what you would hope this guy that you have liked for your entire life kind of gets at the end of his life. And that kind of idea, even though it's maybe not even the very core of this idea, it's kind of what the movie ends on. And it is kind of exactly what I would want to think of as Clint Eastwood, if that's going to be my last image of him on screen. There is, you mentioned earlier, there's a frailty to him when you watch him. It is so striking just seeing him walk around. He is he is a 90-year-old man, I assume, when he yeah. shot this. He was he's, 90. He's not, turned 91 years old this year, which is insane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I mean, and you can see that. He, he, is, he is doing great for 90, don't get me yes. wrong. But he is 90 years old. And you can see that in every way that he moves. And because you have seen him throughout kind of his entire life, you can see how much he is, his body has kind of broken down. 
And yet th- there is a sadness to the movie that kind of is constantly there because you're constantly seeing that. But this movie isn't a downer at the end of the day. It does feel like, I don't think this is his last movie because I do think he's going to be the kind of guy that works until he just literally falls over dead. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't even be surprised if there, if like the quote unquote final Clint Eastwood movie, whatever that is, is actually something like someone else has to finish because he like, but I don't know. He works. He so literally quickly. dies on set. Yeah, I don't know. He might. He works so quickly that it could be like it's it's shot in three days or something right. like that. But I do think it is quite possible that this is the last time we see him as an actor on screen. Um, yeah, and if I'm that sure. is, I, I I I am thankful for this movie for giving me this kind of sweet image and and feeling towards him on screen at this stage in his life. I I know a lot of people are drawing comparisons to this movie to Million Dollar Baby. This is not a unique comparison to make, but I do Mm. think it's very apt because I do think the way those two movies end are kind of very, very similar in that they're kind of going for this um, Breakfast at Tiffany's The Book ending of uh, a story where you're kind of just wishing someone well, but you're not sure how it's going to turn out. I think Million Dollar Baby ends on that note where you're truly not sure. And you really don't think that he is probably ever going to be okay. I think the best you could hope for that character is that he's kind of uh, is able to live out his life and isn't totally dragged down by all of the weight he's carrying. And mm-hmm. I think in versus uh, in Cry Macho, I think you get that ending where you imagine Clint Eastwood really do going off gently and happily into whatever is left of his life. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the other movies in the Eastwood filmography. Everything's kind of on the table. Um, I looked it up. He's directed, I believe this is his 39th movie he's directed, and he has starred in 79. So (laughs) there's a large body of work to deal with. Um, Do you have any kind of like favorites in the, the, the filmography? Is is there there are movies in his filmography that I love that are some of my favorite movies ever made. There's some that I've walked out of and were like, wow, that was like truly awesome. Like I'll never forget when I went and saw the fifteen seventeen the Paris and and walked out and was just like, what in the world was that? Um, truly one of the strangest movies of the last decade. And uh, there's just a lot in between that is that I have varying opinions on. Um, I don't know. So what I'm curious, like what some of your favorites are. Uh, you know, whenever I talk about a Clint Eastwood movie as my favorite, I, I feel like there's always some caveat I have to throw in because I, I think despite how great of a filmmaker he is, he is working, he tends to work off tropes and cliches that are very out of date and are often problematic. And he just really doesn't care that he does that. So um, with that caveat, I have to say that far and away, my favorite movie of his is Million Dollar Baby. I do think that is basically a perfect movie, except for the fact that they have to make a concession to sort of shorten Maggie, aka Hilary Swank's character's life in order to make it tragic. So I'm so glad you brought life. this. Yeah, I'm so it's glad like, you brought this up because that this is. I think I hate to cut you off, but I I just yeah. I I bring it up if only because the life cycle of this movie is so interesting in that it it comes up it comes out in 2004 I believe is when it comes out. It's a hit. It wins a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture, and then there i feel like in the years since there has been a backlash towards it and i feel like the feeling now on the movie is just sort of like 
people hate like that movie is insanely overrated and i've always been like kind of in the middle of like i i like million dollar baby but also like i'm much more like it when it's this this movie's almost like 20 years old i'm i'm fine spoiling it i'm i really really love this movie when it's basically like a very old school sports movie and then there's a turn it takes into where this is a movie about like a woman who is paralyzed and whether or not she should go on living or like voluntary suicide becomes like a big issue and i like when the movie takes that turn I think part of the backlash people have had against it over the years is like when it takes that turn, it's really, really dark. And you kind of leave that movie with a a little bit of like, I feel terrible. And so like, I I don't know. I'm someone who like loves a lot in that movie while also thinks the last like third of it is like kind of appalling in the way that it is like so emotionally manipulative and is also like cruel in a way to just sort of like make you as an audience cry and that's sort of been my issue of it but i again i have not seen it since i was probably like a freshman in college or something like that it's been a long time right you're absolutely correct this movie has rightly so gone through a lot of good criticism about the fact that its ending basically revolves around well, she's paralyzed now, so there's nothing left in life, so she dies, which right. is terrible messaging. I mean, it's a very, it, it, it's one I don't think we've necessarily totally moved on from as a culture of saying, like, someone living with a disability has a lesser life than someone without. Right. Um, like, that, that's the cliche it falls to, and it is a horrifying cliche. I am not arguing that, that that yes. is a terribly problematic aspect of this, and it should never have been done. Yeah. That being said, and I, I, I do should, think- and I should mention, I don't have a problem with necessarily that being in the movie. And I think like, that's a fascinating, because then there's also, you know, the talk of like someone who's in so much pain physically or something. And like, can they make the ch- choice themselves to sort of like in their life by like voluntary suicide? And that is this, like a subject you wouldn't imagine, like an ideally conservative filmmaker to tackle. I just sort of think the way the movie tackles it is in like no other way than to, than to like make you as an audience cry. It's sort of like we're going to do this terrible thing to this character and like go down this really dark path, but it's only because it's like dare you not to not to be bawling when the the movie comes out or something <laughs> like that. So that that's more my issue with it as opposed to like. I think that's a, a subject we can, t- we, filmmakers are free to tackle. It's just sort of, it it seems to be in a very like ham-fisted way. But like, I don't know, like A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis said this was like the third best movie of the 21st century, like a few years back. So like, there's still a camp for it, which is fascinating. And I am in that camp, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> um, as much as I'm apologizing about it, I have to admit that I'm clearly in that camp. And it's because I think it depends on how you read that ending. Mm-hmm. And for me, the way that ending plays, as I said, th- that that question while hanging in the air of kind of questions around assisted suicide and all of these things, they're there, but they're not the main function of the story. And it's not the main function that any of this is there intending to bring up in the story. I think the function of her that she has to die. I think the story does not work unless she dies young. And so they come up with a way to make her die young. And the reason it is definitely a crying movie. It is definitely a movie where I just start 
kind of sobbing. And like one of my big memories of the movie is I first saw it, I was in high school and I was sitting at home. I was sitting at my friend's house, actually watching it with her and her dad. And by the end of the movie, we were all crying. (laughs) And like, that's such a strange, yeah. I mean, that's such a strange phenomenon at that age to be like two teenage girls and a middle-aged man all just crying at this Clint Eastwood movie. But that is kind of because he does nail this story. And I, and, and, and I say, yes, it is a tearjerker, but I'm not crying because I'm necessarily uh, sad about it. I'm crying because there's this very beautiful ending to me in that, Mm -hmm. To her, she has gotten everything that she wants out of life. And she is okay to die, basically. Like, she's happy with what she got out of life. And I think that is such a beautiful idea to bring up. Especially in contrast to what the story, the primary story he's telling, which is about Clint Eastwood's character in that movie. Who will never get what he wanted in life because he made too many mistakes. Maggie Hillary Spank's character actually went for everything and got everything she wanted. And of course she has to die young in order for everyone to realize that sort of this is the chance that you get in life. You get this very small amount of time. We have to shorten that amount of time to her so that you understand that it's tragic when she uh, then has to die, but then she dies essentially happy despite the fact that Clint got this huge long life, uh, his character did, and still made all the wrong choices and Mm -hmm. will not get that happy ending. And very few people do, I think, get the ending of their life to be something like Maggie gets in that movie. And that's why I start crying in that movie because I find it not aspirational, but something that I think if I'm going to be sitting on my deathbed at the end of my life, I want to feel the way Maggie felt at the end of that movie. And well, you've, you've convinced me, Emily, to, to revisit it at some point this year. Cause, cause like so many of these movies we're talking about there, a lot of them are available on HBO max because um, Clint has just had this like, decades deal with warner brothers where like it's kind of amazing of just sort of like he just he's one of those i guess now too because christopher nolan left warner brothers this past week after (laughs) after, like the fallout of tenant so i guess now clint is among like two directors at warner brothers the other i think being um todd phillips um who just have like a blank check of just like they can just come to the Warner Brothers office and they'll be like, yeah, sure, fine, whatever, what do you need? Or something like that. They've made so much money for that studio that like the, the they, they have like a golden key to do whatever they want. Yeah, so I mean, Million Dollar Baby is also very much a father-daughter movie and I'm a sucker for father-daughter movies. Mm. So I mean, there's just a lot going on where that builds into, this is definitely my favorite of many, many great Clint Eastwood movies with a massive caveat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, a little asterisk. <laughs> So I'll go through some of my favorites and then feel free to bring any any up. I just figured this would be a good way for us to tackle a bunch. Um, I'm probably more of a fan of the Western movies that, that Clint Eastwood is a part of. Um, I mentioned Unforgiven, which I think is just like a perfect movie and is like, I'm struggling to find any because like, what more can you say that's not already been said about this movie? And it is just like, powerhouse of so many great like gene hackman's great in it morgan freeman um you know i it is such a great deconstruction of the like shoot 'em up westerns um that eastwood is a part of whether it's the leone movies like good bad the ugly and for a few dollars more or some of the stuff he directed um it's interesting that like for as much of a central figure in the western genre 
He's really only made, I guess Cry Macho is now his fifth Western he's done, but he's only done four in the Old West. Like, I really enjoyed going back recently and watching Outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter, which are two of the earlier ones he does in the 70s. Those are both insanely violent, like very brutal movies that are just like the Old West was hell and are just like those movies are just really going for it and how kind of like nihilistic and um, intense they are. And then you have High Plains Drifter or not High Plains Drifter. That's sorry. I already mentioned that. Then you have Pale Rider in the 80s, which I think is like solid. Um, It is very much a much more sort of traditional western in the way of something like shane and then you have unforgiven which is like the ultimate like western deconstruction of the myth and is just like hey you know all those western movies that you enjoyed watching growing up where like someone gets you know someone beats up someone or someone shoots someone like this is what actually happens when you do that to someone's face and it's like really ugly and gross um so i love that movie um like i said i really liked outlaw josie wales and high plains drifter but do have to give the warning to like those movies high plains drifter especially has some stuff in it that is just like it is intentionally trying to provoke you and be really like ugly and nasty um and contrary to that probably my other favorite clint eastwood movie is bridges of madison county which is is like i think i love because it is not what you would think it is is him doing a romance movie and a romance movie that, as I understand, is based off of, like, a very schmaltzy kind of bad romance paperback. And it's him and Meryl Streep. And I I dare anyone to, like, not watch this movie and and cry. Like, it, th- the best way I can sum it up is, like, what if Clint Eastwood... I don't think it's based off a Nicholas Sparks book, but, like, what if Clint Eastwood basically made a Nicholas Sparks movie, but, like, it was actually like as emotionally gut-wrenching and like sweet and romantic and swooning as those books are supposed to be and i won't give a full spoiler other than to say like there is a scene involving a a traffic light in the rain that if, if if you are not teared up at the end of that scene then i don't know maybe you have like a a, a heart of stone um and and that's maybe my favorite performance of his too which is weird to say he's just so sweet and charismatic and he's i he had to have been like in his 60s or something but he's still like really handsome and i don't know there's just like a way just him looking at meryl streep in that movie is just like so magical to me and is just like as someone who loves movie stars it's just like man that's 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 why this guy has been just like an A plus movie star for so many years is he's just like so effortlessly charming in that movie. I don't know. I, I, you're nodding your head, so I'm assume you really love this movie as well. I I, I have. I, I would like to circle back to all of those movies, but I think the first that you've mentioned, but I think the first thing I want to kind of pick up on as an idea that I think is kind of an interesting idea when you're talking about Clint is: Do you think he's actually a great actor? He definitely has a great screen presence. Mm. He can definitely have like a little range that he can do. But do you think he's actually a great actor? Like particularly thinking about like, is Cry Macho necessarily a great performance as acting from him? I would say no. 
I would say his acting performance in Million Dollar Baby is the weakest link by far of that movie. I think oftentimes in his movies, I think his acting itself is the weakest part of the movie. I don't think he's necessarily... I think he is more a movie star than an actor, I think is the best way I can put it. Yeah, I would probably agree with that while also not... You know, I think... uh you could be more of a movie star than an actor, but that doesn't necessarily make you like a bad actor in movies. If that makes any sense, like, like someone like other people I would put into this category, like Julia Roberts, like Julia Roberts. I don't think of as this, um, you know, Titanic actress, but is like one of the great movie stars of her time. Um, I think Clint fits into the sort of like, box of performer that like i think at a very very early age but maybe not ultimately that early because like he was had done television and stuff a while before he like made it into the movies but i think like sort of arrived in american movies with a very sort of like perfectly chiseled persona and i think the strength and weakness of his movies is how well he's sort of pushing and pulling and morphing that persona i think he he very instinctively knows kind of the the body language and um he's just got like one of the great faces and i don't mean that necessarily as like yes clint eastwood is objectively like one of the like most handsome men who's ever lived but like he he so perfectly understands like how to sort of like do the smallest little gestures with like his mouth or eyes and have it convey so much. He's such a like stilted performer while also I think is able to like be so expressive with just like a look. And um, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 it's the, yeah, that's an interesting question. Cause I never think of him as like an actor in the same way, like a De Niro or a Jack Nicholson, but I think he can be like, a very effective presence in movies and i think understands so much of his own persona and how to like wield that on screen your answer actually made a really interesting connection to me in my head because you were saying that you know like julia roberts he he is he he has that presence and he ha- he is a movie star and i think when you get someone who's a movie star it's a question of what kind of position you put them in are you asking them to really act or are you asking them to be a movie star and i think kind of to go back to something i said before in that clint makes very old school style movies he's not mm-hmm. doing a modern day style of movie i think that old school style of movie making that he does is more about plugging in um movie stars than it is about necessarily plugging in actors there's a definite switch uh in particularly american movies where you had movie stars and then all of a sudden we asked them to act. And mm-hmm. some people made that transition and some people didn't. And that is also a big barrier to people once you cross that divide going back of, are you acclimated to this very different style of acting, which is more about being a persona than being a character. Mm-hmm. And I maybe since Clint does make those kind of movies that often act more for a per, that often ask more of its performers more of for a persona than a character maybe that's why he tends to work particularly well in his own movies yeah um i he is i do i do think 
how Clint directs performances and specifically the Eastwood style of directing that we kind of mentioned, which like I, I don't want to like necessarily say is is a wrong way of directing um, where he works very quickly. And I'm sure if he knows what he wants and he can get it in two takes, then that's fine. Um, I I have noticed in more recent years, like it works really well when he has like a big movie star at the center. Like you mentioned, like, you know, if he has Tom Hanks in, in Sully, like Tom Hanks is a pro and can like give you like a good take in like two takes or something like that. Um, it works less when he's working with unskilled actors, like all the guys in the 1517, the Paris who are playing themselves, but are like, clearly like really uncomfortable and like really have like an odd presence on screen or in cry macho like i i hate to beat up on kid actors but the kid in this movie is really really bad and i think that's part of the reason like the chemistry between him and clint doesn't work it's also probably one of the like problems i have with like grand torino which is a movie that i personally don't really like but have like a lot of friends who are like that movie's a masterpiece and i'm like I don't I don't know what you're you're talking about. Like I'll just watch Unforgiven again. Um, but that that's another one where it's like he's having to connect with like these teen or younger actors and his directing style, he's not he's not necessarily walking them through a performance and it it kind of like leaves them out out in the cold. Like I think I reviewed 1517 in Paris when it came out and actually kind of argue that it was a bit of a slap in the face to these guys to sort of like leave them hanging and looking as kind of like um awkward and uncomfortable on screen as they did and and have them be so kind of like jarringly off-putting just because of like the speed at which Clint Eastwood works. Um yeah, that's 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 the best I could give is like I think his directing style works really well when it's like Sean Penn, but when it's like the kid in this movie who maybe needs like a little bit more time to like get into the character and maybe a little bit more like one-on-one working, it 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 can lead to some like really bad performances. So I think our, our arguably his movies work better when he's got like a Bradley Cooper or a Tom Hanks in it. Um, that's not a signal that I love American Sniper, but we'll see if we have time to even get into that movie. <laughs> <laughs> he needs someone who is comfortable in front of the camera. Yes. And you have brought up 1517 to Paris several times, so I will just kind of give my opinion on that one. Um, I agree, it absolutely does not work. No. <laughs> but I also see exactly what he was going for, and I think it was an interesting idea. Um, I I mean, he's very clearly with that movie trying to critique the idea of them as heroes and to point out that they aren't heroes and this idea that they grew up with. I mean, there's a very, there's a very obvious shot that I remember of like them as kids with like a bed, like with on, on their bed is like laid out a bunch of toy guns and like, this is their idea of how you become a man and how you become a hero is through this, like, again, kind of his his persona style of how you are a man, this macho guy with guns that, you know, rides in and puts everything to rights or whatever he thinks justice is and then rides Mm -hmm. out. I think he is, again, that movie is trying to very consciously play with that idea. And I think in bringing those guys in front of the camera themselves, he's trying to make a point of saying, look at how awkward and not heroic these guys are. 
I think the issue is it went way too far and they're way too uncomfortable. Right. And they're and like he had no clue how to pace that movie in order to make that point. I do think it's one of his biggest stylistic swings of his later career. It's undoubtedly it is an odd like movie. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I see exactly what he was going for, and boy, could he not do it. But I think no. he was like <laughs> It's one of those instances where I was like, you know what? That movie is terrible. But I also see like all of the choices that he was making to try to make a point is at least interesting. And I can appreciate it on that level. But it's a terrible movie. (laughs) Yeah, I think it also brings up, you know, in us talking about the Eastwood movies that work for us versus don't work for us. I don't really like any of his like quote based on a true story, like ripped from the headlines movies. Maybe the one that I remember really working on me is is letters from Iwo Jima, and that's because of this like weird meta narrative that I have going in my head as I watch that movie, which is like that Eastwood clearly just like really interested in and his curiosity into just like well, what was it like on the other side of this World War II battle? And that curiosity and that sort of fascination with understanding that is sort of what makes that movie really sing for me. But mo- I think part of the reason I, I like haven't connected with most of his movies in the last decade or so is because he basically is- has gotten into the habit of just sort of doing these sort of based off like either biopics like American Sniper or um, I can't remember the Nelson Mandela one. But um, Invictus, is that what it's called? Or, yeah. or J. Edgar, the awful, awful, awful J. Edgar Hoover movie with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Or they're sort of based off of recent events like the 1517 to Paris or Sully. Um, I guess The Mule is based off a true story. I did kind of like The Mule. but um, Richard I, Jewell, what did you think of that one? I think that's oh, one of his better liked recent movies. I'm mixed on it. If, if only because, like, I think... When it's Paul Walter Hauser, Kathy Bates, and Sam Rockwell like in a room together, that movie it it, it crackles because you know those are three incredible actors and like if they're bouncing off each other. It's going to be fun to watch. But of sort of the problem I have is his style as of late is so stripped down and and bare and sparse that I think those movies, including Richard Jewell, just sort of wind up being like Wikipedia pages. And I think if you're going to do these kind of based off true stories, movies, you you need someone who's going to like pull some angles out of those stories to make them sing more on the big screen. And I, I remember being kind of frustrated with Richard Jewell of just like, he just sort of seems to be like recounting what happened and was just like, isn't this interesting? Can you believe this happened? And, and, but it, even if what he's going to bring out of it is this, like, what I feared it was going to be, this, like, weird right-wing, like, the media and the FBI are coming for you sort of thing of, like, I I, I just sort of missed, like, I remember telling Hunter Heilman, who I think has been, who's been on this podcast several times, like, I kind of wanted the David Fincher version of it that is, like, really the, like, terror of, like, there's just like news cars following you constantly and you like can't leave your home. Like the almost like gone girl version of this, of that movie. Um, instead of Clint's like, I adapted the Wikipedia page about like what happened to Richard Jewell, which essentially is kind of what that movie felt like. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think Richard Jewell is, uh, I, I honestly barely remember it. Cause I think I was just kind of like, it's fine. And then walked away from it and never yeah. thought about it again. Um, uh, which is, one of the better outcomes for his recent movies, to be quite honest. Um, 
but I do think it kind of gets at something I said, uh, I think at the very beginning of this podcast, when I was kind of talking about why I'm still interested in Clint Eastwood movies, is that you often expect him to do one thing and then he'll twist it in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And I think like what you were saying with Richard Jewell, you're like, oh, they're going to come in and say, you know, he's, it's going to come from his very right wing perspective politics. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't. If anything, that movie is critical of how the FBI just kind of swoops in and has too much power. Yeah. Or as you were saying with something like, uh, he did letters of Iwo Jima and then flags of our fathers right smushed together, which is kind mm-hmm. of telling both sides of that kind of event in world war two. Uh, he did that in mid two thousands, which yeah. as I recall, the mid two thousands is a very strange period in American history to be at all critical of uh, the U S military. Like, I think yes. we were still very like, Ooh, rah, we're okay with going in wherever we want and taking over whatever. Cause we're still in that very, very Americana post 9-11 period. So for him to come out, he's not specifically taking on what we were doing at that time, but I do think there is an idea with those two movies hanging in the background of questioning whether the American military going into a place is necessarily uh, always good, or if we're always necessarily the good guy, or if there is only one perspective to this story. So I think that kind of gets to this idea of, I think oftentimes people think of Clint Eastwood as a certain way, and that he actually makes his movie. And I'm not saying they totally contradict that, but he is seems to be a little bit more moderate in maybe the way his politics show in his movies than people expect it to be. Yeah, it's and, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced. And, and I think that's that's an interesting thing that like critics have, you know, his the, the critics that I think are Eastwood uh, devotees are, uh, you know, people like A.O. Scott or K. Austin Collins kind of bringing out these contradictions and stuff when they write about him. Because I feel like, you know, in the post, um, you know, RNC empty chair <laughs> world, if anyone remembers that bizarre incident involving him and during the like 2012 election, like I, I feel like there is a need to sort of like write him off as this like curmudgeon right, super right wing guy. And that isn't always the case as much as like he has sort of intentionally like brought those political um, assumptions into his work and into his personal life. Like I believe he ran for mayor of like some town in California or something like that. And I, you know, and also like it, he clearly understands something about a kind of like, like his movies still, I think, connect with a kind of like flyover state um, audience, which is is unique and is something to like bring up. You know, something like I I remember seeing American Sniper be- like in the early state, like before it was going to come out, and was just like that's fine, or was just like Bradley Cooper's good. I don't know about that movie. And then like a few weeks passed, and that movie became like the biggest hit of 2014 here in the United States. And it like clearly struck a chord with like a particular audience in kind of the middle part of America and in the South where I live. And that was fascinating to see, even if like, I was just sort of like, I don't understand people's enthusiasm for this movie. And it has nothing to do with its politics. It's just sort of like, I wish he had a take on this guy other than like, isn't he cool? He did this or something like that. Um, I don't know. That that was a bit of a like verbal dump 
um, <laughs> about all that. But I, I think that's, you know, we brought the mule. Like, the mule was a hit, but, like, no one talked about it because it wasn't this, like, Eastwood Oscar contender. But there is still an audience, whether it's in these, like, more red belt states or, you know, an older audience that is like, I don't know, I have to catch up with 20 Marvel movies before I see this or something and just sort of see him on the cover and he can still like, he can still churn out a hit even if he's not necessarily clawing for a hit, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I'm in the Midwest and whenever I go see a Clint Eastwood movie at this point, those theaters are full. Like, yes. It is a regular AMC. Those theaters are full. You know, he's, you know, we talk about the death of the movie star. He is one of the last standing movie stars that like anyone knows who Clint Eastwood is. And a lot of people will just go see a movie based on his name alone. Yeah. Um, I think to kind of wrap up my point on the way he, uh, he kind of contradicts his own persona uh is I want to circle back to Bridges of Madison County. Mm, because mm. whenever people talk to me about uh, Clint Eastwood, and I can sense that they are going off of that pop culture persona of here's this macho dude, da 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 da, kind of, I think, it's, I think his pop culture persona is kind of an amalgamation of uh, Dirty Harry and the Man with No Name. I think that's mm. where his, kind yeah. of his persona which, kind of comes or, from yeah, those Yeah, which two are things. like the two characters he returned to over and over again. And, you know, we're running out of time, but like, the Dirty Harry character and like that movie, which I'd only seen bits and pieces of before, but like watched for the first, like watched in whole for the first time, is like a a fascinating, fascinating movie to to unpack and like what it meant for the time and what it still kind of represents and like how both powerful while also disturbing in a lot of ways it is um i don't know continue but I, of like no notable you bringing up like those are the two roles people think of and like those are the two characters he would return to over and over again with like both don siegel and sergio leone right and i think with people our age it's not necessarily that we can people can really name those two characters i think that just kind of become the idea of him as blended up mm. between those two characters as a pop culture persona so whenever i get the sense that people that is how people think of clint eastwood and then they will just not see any of his movies because of that because they're not interested in the kind of terrible politics of those characters and then him yelling at a chair at the Republican National Convention. <laughs> um, I always say, like, go watch Bridges of Madison County. I guarantee you, like, if you're that kind of person who thinks of Clint Eastwood that way, that movie will fundamentally change what you think he can and cannot do as a filmmaker. Because it is a movie on the simple fact that it's a movie about a woman. It is not about his character. It is about the uh, kind of sad desperation of a woman alone in, I think it's the Midwest of like the yeah. very core of the, the very central part of uh, either the plains or the Midwest United States. Meryl Streep is playing a woman who uh, married an American soldier while he was overseas and he brought her to America. And I think she had this idea of like, she's going to be in New York city or somewhere really ex this exciting idea of America. And she ended up in the middle of nowhere on a farm, raising a family and now she's, her kids are getting older and she's kind of having to look at whether she has anything left in her life or whether she really got anything she wanted out of her life. And then in comes Clint Eastwood's character and it's kind of this last gasp chance of romance and maybe this last chance she has to kind of go for these things that she maybe wanted a romanticized idea of her life to be. And it is a very quiet movie. It is really a movie very much about that very internal struggle of herself that it's not necessarily 
overtly stated, as Clint Eastwood often in his movies overtly states things, all of these things are playing kind of underneath the surface. And he's smart enough, of course, to pair with Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. And he's smart enough to know that he can just let Meryl Streep's face sit on a sit in a frame and she will get all of this across and he doesn't have to overstate anything like that. So I think it is both from the topics that he's discussing and exploring and the way he does it is so different than pretty much any other movie that he's done. Like, I just think people, like, if you have an idea of Clint Eastwood, go see Bridges of Madison County. It will break it for you. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a perfect suggestion. And now my head is, you know, running with the the multitude of different titles that, like, we could probably go for another full hour into, you know, talking about something like A Perfect World, which I think is, like, one of the more underrated movies of the 90s, or, you know, unpacking dirt, the, the Dirty Harry series and the ways that that series kind of, like, comments on the first movie which is both like a powerfully effective movie while also like a little bit fashion not what is kind of fascist and is (laughs) and is like has some kind of like troubling politics in it but also like is evocative of a a kind of like right-wing fan nixon era fantasy of its time and like the fact that that movie was so successful is it that is just sort of like we could do a full hour on just unpacking that movie and everything around it. Um, and, or, you know, we could spend time with, you know, me impersonating Sean Penn in Mystic River. <laughs> Maybe that's the perfect way to end it out. I, I have to say, quick story on Mystic River. I'm on, I can cut this out of, this is like really off topic. I was on the New York City subway with a friend of mine a few years ago and we were talking about Sean Penn. I don't really know why. And all of a sudden, this we just like hear from the other end of the subway car, this woman, not not a homeless woman, just like a woman coming back from the grocery store was just like, is that my daughter in there? <laughs> and we didn't know what she was doing. And, and then because it had been years since I had seen Mystic River. And then she was just like, Mystic River, you know, Sean Penn. And I was like. Oh yeah, that that scene where like Sean Penn looks like he's having like you know, he's foaming at the mouth and it's just like looks like he's having a, a seizure while like realizing his daughter was murdered. Pretty good of movie. All, <laughs> of all the things you can pull out for to reference Sean Penn, it's like that one. But you know what? Everyone sees a Clint Eastwood movie, I guess. That's the role of I, that story. <laughs> another one like Million Dollar Baby that was like a big a big deal when that movie came out in the early 2000s. Um, Emily, thank you so much for for stopping by this week. We could have easily spent another hour talking about the, the career of Clint Eastwood. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back at, at some point. Um, maybe when he makes his next movie. Maybe, maybe when he does the, the like eighth like i'm gonna go like around the around the bin one more time movie we'll we'll bring you back and just do this conversation all over again (laughs) absolutely obviously uh i could also keep going about him because i just find him an endlessly fascinating movie character within uh cinema (laughs) well film inquiries the latest is brought to you by filminquiry.com where you can read all sorts of wonderful reviews and articles and columns emily do you have anything that you want to plug recently? 
Uh, we mentioned Howard Hawks earlier in passing. I have the, uh, it was recently the 75th anniversary of the release of The Big Sleep. So I did a retrospective piece on that. It is up at Film Inquiry if you want to read it. Very fun movie. Um, also brought to you by the Film Inquiry Podcast Network, where you can listen to, uh, there's just several good podcasts on there. I would recommend if you enjoy this show, check those out. In the coming weeks, I'm going to try and get Christy Strauss back here to talk about TIFF. And, um, you know, I, I, I saw Dear Evan Hansen last night. That's maybe something we'll have to talk about on that episode. And uh, October is going to be a really big month. We have, like, a Bond movie. There's a new Halloween movie. There's Dune. There's a new Wes Anderson movie. There's there's so much. So if you're a fan of this show, there's going to be a lot, like, all caps, a lot to discuss in the next month. So stay tuned.